calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome back to another comp segment. And as per usual, we have Emily Summer joining us from East City Bookshop. Hi, Emily. Hi, Bianca. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. The segment has become so incredibly popular. People absolutely love your recommendations and we have tons of people who listen to it purely for figuring out what they need to read next, not just because they're looking for comp titles. And can we just say that somebody who called in last month and asked for comp titles, we had an agent who was listening to the segment who then reached out to us via Twitter to say, please, please, please get this author to pitch me because I love this idea so much. And now we managed to find the author and put them in touch. So look at you, oh. Emily, making dreams come true every day. Well, that is that author just having such a great idea, but I love that. That is amazing. How fantastic. Right. Let's dive in. Here is our first request. Hi, Bianca and Emily. Thank you for your podcast and for this segment. My name is also Bianca and I'm looking for comps for my YA fantasy. Ray is an anxious recent grad with no direction in life who is still grieving the father she doesn't remember. When Ray sees two strangers abduct her mom, she follows them through what she later discovers is a portal to Athera, a hidden island where all but one person can do magic. Amari is the princess of Athera, but her magic doesn't work and no one knows why. Amari's parents, the king and queen, are terrible parents and desperate to get her married. All Amaria wants is to finish school and enjoy time with her secret girlfriend. When Amaria meets Ray, she learns that she is her cousin that everyone in Etheria believed died 17 years ago. Throughout the book, the girls learn the truth about their family secrets while looking for Ray's mom, all while navigating first loves, a distressing proposal, final exams at the magic school, and choosing between what is right versus what is easy. I have Twin Crowns by Catherine Doyle and Catherine Weber as a comp, and I was thinking of Ninth House by Lee Bardugo for a magic school comp, but that book is much darker than mine. I'm thinking of maybe finding a portal fantasy for a comp, but I'm not sure which. Thanks for your help. Okay, so hello to another Bianca. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for calling in. As I say every month now, because people are so attuned to what we're doing here, people give their own comps and it is so helpful. I think that Twin Crowns is a great one. I love that. I agree that it sounds like Ninth House might be too dark and it might skew too adult as well, since we're looking at young adult here. And in terms of portal fantasies and books that had the same feel and the same tone, I thought of Sisters of the Snake by Serena Nanua and Sasha Nanua. That is a book from 2021. And it, there's something about it just makes me think that this might have the same readership and hit the same vibes. So I would suggest in addition to Twin Crowns, looking maybe at Sisters of the Snake. Thank you, Emily. All right, here's the next one. 
Hello, I'm looking for comps for my multi-POV upmarket fiction novel, The Writers Club. It's 2006, 2007 in Rhode Island, and four college seniors, all male, form a business writing papers for other students. On the surface, life is great. Parties, girls, and easy money. But all four are avoiding major family issues back at home, and graduation and real life are just around the corner, not to mention a recession. Right now, my comps are The Secret History Meets The Nest, The Secret History for the New England College Campus Setting, and The Nest for the dysfunctional families aspect and tone. But I don't know if these are too big and or too old to comp. I've considered normal people, but the tone doesn't quite fit. And the other novels with protagonists in college that I've come across tend to be YA. I'm having trouble finding campus novels that are adult that take place in the 2000s. I do think an adult coming of age novel could also possibly work. Any suggestions are much appreciated. Thank you. I love that we are starting to see more books set in the late aughts, the 2006-2007 time period. That still feels very recent to me, but indeed it is time to look back. I love a campus novel and I love an adult coming of age. So I had a lot of fun thinking about comps for this upmarket work. So the comps mentioned were The Secret History Meets the Nest. I think I agree with you that neither of those are exactly right. Of course, I have not read your book, The Work in Progress, but I would say based on what you've said, I think the secret history is indeed too big, too old, but also I think it's too dark. So that is really just like the most gothic of campus stories. It feels very foreboding. It doesn't feel particularly upmarket, like very literary. So I feel like that is not the right comp, even if it wasn't too big and too old to mention. The Nest, I love that book. I mean, I love The Secret History too. When I hear The Nest, I think of a family story. So I'm thinking about the siblings who in Cynthia Sweeney's book are trying to figure out what to do with what's left. So I feel like maybe a group of friends on campus that might not call to mind the exact right thing. Similarly with normal people, when I hear normal people, I'm thinking of a like torturous but beautiful romance through the years, which I maybe that's part of it, in which case, by all means, mention it. But it also, I think maybe too, maybe we don't want to comp to Sally Rooney unless it's exactly, exactly right. So what I've thought of instead, one of my favorite campus novels of recent years, it's possible that it's slightly too old for our purposes. I think it's from... I don't know, 2015 or 2016, but it is an adult campus novel that is not the sort of gothic, dark campus drama of something like The Secret History. And that is The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach. And in The Art of Fielding, you you are very much on a college campus. You hear from the professors. You also hear from the students. You hear like real life encroaching in on what's happening on the campus. I love it. Even if it's too old, I highly recommend people check it out because it is such an entertaining and satisfying read. I also thought about The Assistance by Camille Perry, which is probably from like maybe 2017 or so. That is not a campus novel, but it is a novel about young 20-somethings who kind of have a scam going, which when you said that these are students who are writing for others and have this system going, I thought of The Assistance, which I have seen described as sort of a modern day nine to five. And it's called The Assistance because the assistants for this billionaire and his company figure out that they can bilk the executives, bilk the company and pay off each other's student loans. It is exactly as much fun as it sounds. I love it. I'm still selling it at the bookstore. I would also suggest maybe All This Could Be Different by Sarah Tanka Matthews, depending on the tone. In that book, which was a National Book Award finalist last year and is wonderful, it felt I felt like as a Gen X reader, it really helped me understand some like younger people, but I loved it. 
but it is a recent grad. So she's out in the real world and really figuring out what to do romantically, professionally, with friends, with her parents. It captures that immediately post-grad feeling of life. And it is set in the the near past. It might be a little more recent than 2006, 2007, but it's definitely in that like recession, post-recession era. Real Life by Brandon Taylor is very much a recent campus novel. It's grad school and it might skew too literary and maybe too serious, but that's another one I would consider. And finally, I would suggest one of my favorite novels of this year, and that is The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donohue, which takes place in Cork in 2008. So right before like Ireland is about to have, you know, huge economic consequences. And we have our protagonist, Rachel, who is, I think she's still in school during the book or, or about to graduate and just messiness ensues, but it's so well-written. It's so engaging. I absolutely loved it. So check out the Rachel incident. Thank you, Emily. Here's our next one. Hi, I'm looking for comp titles for my queer literary novel. When a people-pleasing college grad gets a job at an LGBTQ advocacy organization, she thinks she's finally gotten away from her dysfunctional family, but risks being pulled into the same problematic dynamic in her new queer chosen family unless she can learn to be honest with herself and those around her. It is set against the backdrop of the 2008 economic recession, so I was thinking all this could be different by Sarah Thinkum. Matthews could be a comp. It's written with a similar tone and style to Real Life by Brandon Taylor, and also it covers some familiar secrets related to addiction. So I was also thinking of I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin. Okay, so for number four, it's so funny how sometimes each month we'll have like a recurrent theme and I will go through one and I'll come up with my list and then I'll listen to the next voicemail and it's something that we just talked about. So in this one, we've got we've got again the backdrop of the 2008 economic recession. We have a young college grad. Our astute and smart caller knows that all this could be different in real life, which I just mentioned, could be good comps. And she also mentions I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin. And I just want to take a minute to talk about that book because I loved it so much. And I don't think it has gotten the attention that it's due. And I could live here forever. Our main character is in an MFA program. And I loved how vivid and well-drawn that MFA program was. I think it's in Madison and it's Wisconsin, but I just felt like I was there. I'm like, oh, this is what an MFA program is really like. But in that she, our main character, as she's going through this MFA program, she meets a local. They are immediately drawn to each other. And unfortunately he is a heroin addict, an opioid addict. It is gripping and marvelous. And I think that that our writer here doesn't need my help because she's got such great comps, but I will add in what I mentioned for our last caller. And that's the Rachel incident. I think it would work here as well. Damn it, Emily, you're adding to my to be read pile. I just, you you will, you all will not regret it. Go out today and buy, I could live here forever. You'll read it in one sitting. It's fantastic. Right. Here's our next one. Hi, I'm Catherine. Thank you so much for this amazing opportunity. I'm seeking help with comp titles for my commercial leaning at market fiction with a punchy tone and pacing and self-discovery arc. 
It's set in a speculative future in the historic city of Oxford, UK, where 32-year-old Nina leads a research project testing a new technology claiming to reduce negative emotions click of a button. But when she accidentally programs the project prototyping correctly, the younger versions of herself she's been discussing with her therapist come suddenly to life. The story is based on a real therapy modality and follows Nina as she learns to confront her angry 16-year-old self and the vulnerable four-year-old hiding underneath, while nobody else can see them. I'm currently comparing it to Matt Haig's The Midnight Library due to its UK setting, speculative elements and self-discovery journey, but I'd love your view on this. I also use TV series Black Mirror, and after describing my book to a few people, they spontaneously brought this up, which I'm taking as a good sign. I would love some other book titles. Thank you so much. Okay, I love this is one where I love all of the ideas that you all call in, but occasionally I yeah, I, I love it so much that I'm like, what a great idea. So the idea of younger versions of ourselves appearing to us, I think that is just a genius speculative angle. I'm already thinking of, you know, 12 year old Emily and 20 year old Emily and what I would say to them if they showed up. So I think that the hook is fabulous. And I love the idea of Matt Haig's Midnight Library meets Black Mirror. And where I think that the Midnight Library works is because it's clearly our writer mentions punchy tone and pacing. And that's how Matt Haig's work feels. It doesn't feel like this weighty, serious, dark speculative fiction. You know, it has a real lightness to it, which I really enjoy. So I have two books that I think are really right on the money here. That's the good news. The bad news is that neither of them are out yet. They are both coming out in 2024, but that just means you'll be ahead of the curve and all of you are going to hear about these books and be ready to pre-order them so that when they come out, you don't have to wait in line at your library. So the first one is The Husbands by Holly Gramazio, and that is a book that's coming out in April from Doubleday from one of my favorite editors, Lee Boudreaux, and that is another book that feels very grounded, like realistic fiction, a very, very enjoyable, fast, funny tone and pacing. But the speculative bent is that a woman comes home from her best friend's hen party. She's single, yet she wakes up the next morning and realizes that there is a husband in her apartment. It's still her apartment, but things are slightly wrong. And there's a husband there. She's like, how did I get this husband? What is happening? She realizes when he goes upstairs, to the attic, a new husband comes down. So she's got a magic attic that will supply her with an endless stream of husband options. So some of them don't even make it all the way down the stairs. She's like, nope, not you. Don't like the looks of you. Nope, something's wrong with you. Some of them she'll try out for a couple of weeks. Some of them she might try out for longer. It is marvelous. It's so smart. It's so sharp. It is indeed punchy and pacey. And I think it's got the mix of commercial realistic and speculative in the future that might work here. The next one is one that I have not read yet, but one of my colleagues read it and has loved it. It is on my list and it's called The Ministry of Time by Kayleen Bradley. That one is not coming out until May 7th from Simon & Schuster. But again, there it's, there's a time travel element. There's a present day character who is tasked with keeping tabs on and keeping company with like someone from the past, but I think it has the same tone and the same feel. So I like what you've got so far and keep your eye out for the husbands and the ministry of time. They both sound excellent. I'm now really wanting to get one of them onto the podcast for an interview. So I'm scribbling furious notes. Holly Gramazio would be great if she's willing. She was actually at the Doubleday pre-pub party where I just saw our 
our mutual friend, Claire Lombardo, and she's lovely. So I bet she would, I bet Holly would come on. I don't know, Kayleen. I'm sure she's lovely as well. Wonderful. I will make a note. Okay. Here's our next one. Hi there. And many thanks to the shit as usual for being fabulous in every way. I'm looking for comps for my dark literary novel that leans on elements of psychological horror, mother wound trauma, and surrealism. Joan Breed, an avant-garde artist, gave birth on 35mm film in 1997. Decades later, when an aneurysm kills her, her daughter Lisa inherits her Ripley Museum oddity of a house, a spare room locked from the inside, a stream of grieving visitors, and disturbing memories from her unconventional childhood. The controversial nature of her mother's artistry and her devoted followers haunt Lisa until she can either break or take up her mother's mysterious mantle. My current comp is Biography of X by Catherine Lacey, which feels a bit too close, you know, the death of a mysterious artist, and Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder when it comes to the tone, the quick pace, and the sparse prose. The book contains dark magical realism, stark and often quite grotesque imagery, and classic feminine rage, of course. Would love to hear what comes to mind for you. Thank you. Okay. You all really don't need me anymore because y'all, everybody is getting their own comps. Sometimes I will have one that pops in my head and then the writer is like, here's what I've got so far. I'm like, that's it. That's it. So I think that this dark literary psychological horror, sort of a disturbing literary novel, I think that the ideas of Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder and The Disappearance of Cap, I think those are wonderful. I would, I absolutely think that that's the right track. I can see where a book would sit alongside those. Obviously, I'm not an agent, but that feels extremely right to me. The one I will add is like motherhood body horror that has done well for us in the store. And it's called Just Like Mother by Ann Heltzel. It skews more horror, but it's definitely has elements of motherhood. I think it's got the mother-daughter disturbing nature. So I would look at that one as well. Maybe slightly less literary than the others, which could could be good. Thank you, Emily. Okay, here's our next one. Hello, T-Snot. I would be immensely grateful if you could help me find comps for my middle grade ghost story. 13-year-old Nissa has the perfect afterlife helping spirits cross to the other side until she meets a smooth-talking spirit named Renato who refuses to move on. As she cracks the code on his life story to find out what's holding him back, he needles into hers. But the closer they grow, the more she wants him to stay. When an angry spirit arrives, they must work together to decipher clues that will take them from an abandoned house in a spooky marsh to a wintry funeral. It soon becomes clear the spirit wants someone to go back to the living world to return a lost necklace. Nyssa has no interest in going back because it means facing the circumstances of her life and death. But if she doesn't, she could lose her perfect world forever and trap the spirits she's meant to help. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Okay, so I was trying to think middle grade. We got some. We need some good middle grade ghosty books. And so I have a few and you'll have to look and see if the tone, which of these has the right tone and feels right. The first one is The Lonely Ghost by Mike Ford. And this is two sisters realize that their house might be haunted. Maybe there is a ghost in their house that they need to help. It's possible this one may feel too spooky. So that depends on how spooky our 13 year old girl who is helping these ghosts to get to the other side. So if it's if it skews a little spookier, I think The Lonely Ghost could work. I also thought of the Elizabeth Webster series by William Lashner. These are all recent enough. I think that they would work. And I think this one is less spooky. So I think this one skews a little more realistic fiction where there happens to be ghosts and not, you know, not anything that's like Shirley Jackson light. 
Not to say that the Lonely Ghost is Shirley Jackson for kids either, but it does skew a little spookier, I think. And the final one is along the same lines of these others, and it's called Ghost Girl by Allie Malininko. I hope I said that correctly. So I would look at those and see if any of those feel like they've got the right tone. Marvelous. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, my name is Annie, and I'm looking for comps for my upmarket novel, Moth to a Flame, told in alternating dual timelines. Present day is written in first-person present from the perspective of 40-year-old Autumn Devereaux, a successful architect with a tragic family backstory who's begrudgingly attending the Oscars with her ex-fiance and up-and-coming composer, Penn Clark. Present-day timeline covers about seven hours, red carpet until the end of the Oscars. The past timeline is third-person close, past tense, and covers Autumn and Penn's meeting in college through the betrayal that split the pair, which happens 13 years before the night of the Oscars. There is dishonesty and betrayal, but there's also a lot of love between this couple that cannot figure out how to hold each other's hearts. There's humor, but this is not a rom-com. Nora Goes Off Script is not a comp. The story is much more about Autumn overcoming her past and the arc of Autumn and Penn's relationship than it is about the Oscars, though it's definitely a fun backdrop for tension. At about 250 pages, it's fast-paced and beta readers have said aloud, oh my gosh, what happened? And oh my gosh, are they going to get back together? Dark, but not without hope. This book asks what is forgivable in someone else and what is forgivable in ourselves. Any suggestions you have would be so helpful. Thank you. All right. One thing y'all might not know about me, or you might, because I've probably recommended one of these books before and and mentioned it. I love the Oscars. There's nothing I love more than the Oscars. I mean, maybe my family and reading books, but Oscars are right up there. So anything that is centered around the Oscars, I'm going to buy it. It tells me that they're they're attending the Oscars and there's a tragic backstory. Sold. That is a book for me. I hear you that it it has some humor in it, but it's not a rom-com dark, but not without hope, which may be my favorite like slice of micro genre. And I would suggest two, two that I think you should look at, even if the comps aren't exactly right, just because they're good and there might be something there. And then one comp that I think might be spot on. So the two that I think you should look at one monsters, a love story by Liz K, which is probably the one that I have mentioned on here. I love that one too. Love it. It is the best. And it's one that like, I think did not get enough attention. Liz Kay is a poet. This is her only novel that I'm aware of. But one of my colleagues and I, it has been one of our favorites to come out in the life of the store. And so we continuously, I always have two copies on the shelf, which in a small store and an older book, it's from 20, I think it's from 2017. I don't always keep multiple copies, but I always keep two of these because my coworker, Kathy and I are always selling it. As you can hear from the title, Monsters, A Love Story, it is indeed a love story. And the reason I thought of it is because it has a wonderful climax at the Oscars. And one of the characters is an actor, an A-list actor. He's he's a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt type. But it also is very much not a rom-com. It has a lot of wit in it. And it's very sharp and has some sharp humor. But it is not a rom-com. And they're monsters. Like they are both hot messes. Like there are, they got issues. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but they've got this sort of intertwined story. Like, are they going to work it out? And then you've got the Oscars and it is dark. It's, it's much darker than you would, if it had a different title, the love story angle you would expect. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I think it is so, so smart. The next one does skew a little more rom-com. It's called The Rewind by Allison Wynn Scotch. But I loved this book and I thought of it because it has a, it's a dual timeline. So it's the present day. And then you also get flashbacks to this couple's past. And the premise is a couple that was madly in love in college, have not seen each other for 10 years. And now it's their 10 year college reunion. They are at back on campus for their mutual friend's wedding, wake up the next morning after the joint parties 
in bed with each other and they have to figure out, okay, what happened last night to get us to this point? Because we never wanted to see each other again. And so you get their back, their first chance at romance, and then you get sort of what happened on the night at this, this weekend when they're all back together. It does look like the cover looks rom-commy and it does have more of that element in it, the romance element, but I really thought it was smart and I really liked it. It has a late nineties when they graduate from college and I'm a sucker for the nineties. So I would recommend at least checking it out. The one that I think might be the most appropriate is from this year. It's called Talking at Night by Claire Daverly. And along with the Rachel incident, these are two of my favorites of the year. It is a love story. It is a relationship story. Absolutely, it is not a rom-com. And it too, it has a tragic backstory. There's a tragic incident that binds these characters together and also keeps them from fully being able to be together. It has real dark threads, but is absolutely not without hope. So I think that talking at night, uh, it doesn't have the Oscars element, but I think that the timelines and the relationship and the tone might work. And it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Thank you, Emily. Yeah. When you talk about A-list leading men celebrities, you can keep Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Give me Colin Firth any day. I love him too. And honestly, that's dating myself, right? If I'm talking about Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, <laughs> they might not. I mean, I think they're still A-list, but like that's that's me stuck in my younger years since they're, they're, getting, on, they're getting on up there now. Even in my yeah. younger, wilder years, I would have taken Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy any day over those two. Yes. And, and for that matter, that the BBC version is the true version. That is, that is the, one, the one true television version for sure. We will not legitimize any other no. versions. Okay, here we go. Here's the next one. Hi, I would love some help with from my upmarket dual POV murder mystery of Relentless Sea set in atmospheric San Diego, California. When one of his own graduate students washes up dead on the beach, the chair of the oceanography department uses his knowledge of ocean currents to help the San Diego police track down killer. But he's not prepared to have his world turned upside down by the detective on the case, a whip-smart woman who just so happens to be the SD's top detective. The pair must race against the clock before another student ends up dead, all while they confront corruption at the highest levels of the police and their feelings for one another. The closest comp I have currently is Ellie Griffith's Ruth Galloway murder mystery series, which also has a professor as a main character as well as a love story protagonist. My novel is also similar in tone to Louise Penny's books. It's not a super dark procedural, but it's also not a cozy. It falls somewhere in between. It's very character driven, uh, but I think Louise Penny might be too big to comp, so I'm looking for comps that fit that same tone and ideally also have a romance subplot, a university setting, and or a strong sense of place. Thank you so much. I love an upmarket murder mystery because I skew toward very dark, like psychological suspense thrillers. And so I love something that kind of sits in that sweet spot in the middle. It's not a cozy, but is not as dark as so many. And I think that as a result, the Ellie Griffiths series comp is spot on. I think that sits exactly in that sweet spot and would feel exactly right. I agree that Louise Penny is probably too big, but I like that you mention it because that sort of gives me a sense of the feel of the book. I would suggest looking at, and I'm sure I've mentioned her before, Louisa Luna. She skews slightly darker. So she writes procedurals, but they're not, they are not police detectives. It's like a freelance missing persons investigator and a retired, marginally disgraced former police detective who is now on his own as a private investigator. She has several books. They're all excellent. She skews darker than Louise Penny, but not nearly as dark as, say, Karen Slaughter, who I worship, but is extremely, I think, on the very, very dark end of mysteries. 
So I would look at Louisa Luna. There's also a little bit of a romance element there, which is why I thought of her. The the two characters who are forced to work together find that they have some chemistry, which adds to the texture of the book. And another one that I thought of, which hear me out, because this might sound like a wild comparison. I wonder, depending on the tone, if Remarkably Bright Creatures might have any similarities. There's no, you know, that Remarkably Bright Creatures is the octopus book. So I'm sure there none of the oceanography in this book probably features an ocean creature as a character. But it does have that like very strong oceanic element. And it does have a very strong sense of place in the Pacific Northwest. I know this one's you said it's in San Diego, but it does like the setting is very important in that book. It, it feels extremely real. And even though it's not a traditional mystery, certainly not a murder mystery, it is very much a what happened? Can we find out what happened? And a propulsive plot. So just something to consider. Thank you. Okay, here's our next one. Hello, ladies. I'd appreciate your ideal cups for my debut novel. Cocktail Cove is a relationship-driven murder mystery set on Lake Lanier, a gorgeous yet dangerous real-life reservoir in Georgia on the shores of an historic town that's one part Mayberry and one part Ozark. Investigative reporter Emery Carver and her new husband, Burke, are transplanted from New York to Georgia, where they are desperately trying to conceive before turning 40. And when Emery's best friend is found dead by the lake's popular party cove and Burke is arrested for murder, Emery isn't so sure about his innocence. She teams up with a local lawyer and policewoman to free her husband and rescue her maternal dreams. In the end, she finds the true killer and exposes the greedy locals behind an opioid ring that's devastating the town she's come to love. Cocktail Co. features a distinct blend of domestic realism and dark small-town secrets with southernisms that lighten the suspense. It should appeal widely to fans of classic murder mysteries and contemporary thrillers, book lovers, and lake lovers. Y'all are the best. With gratitude, Paula Dumas. Hi, Paula. So, Paula, I am from South Carolina, so I know, I actually know Lake Lanier in Georgia, and I... I'm a sucker for both Mayberry and Ozark. So I, I love that this town is one part Mayberry, one part Ozark, because I'm already thinking like, how can that be? They're so diametrically opposed, but I love it. And I love a psychological drama or a mystery that deals with the secrets of a town. So the two that I think sound the most apt here are Locust Lane by Stephen Amidon, which I'm already losing track of time. It either came out in 2022 or early in 2023. Sometimes I forget when I, I read things early, it, but it's recent. It's The timing would work. And Locust Lane is a very propulsive mystery where you're dealing with suburban secrets. In that one, it's more of a neighborhood than a town, but the neighborhood is the character too. And you're definitely figuring out like what is happening here? Like what are what is going on with all these people? What's going on underneath the surface in all of these homes and families and this sort of idyllic community? So I think Locust Lane could work, plus it's a very good read. And the other one is one of my favorites from last year called The Mid Coast by Adam White. And that one I think is so spot on that it even features an Ozark comp on its cover. At least it was on the hardback cover. David Benioff, who wrote City of Thieves and wrote and produced Game of Thrones had a wonderful blurb that said something like as gripping as an entire season of Ozark, but it, it mentioned Ozark. So the mid coast is set on the mid coast of Maine. So the setting's not the same, but it might feel the same because that's another one, a town that is one part Mayberry, one part Ozark. You're uncovering the secrets of the town, the conspiracies in the town to figure out what is happening at the heart of this mystery. So I think either of those might be right here. And they're also just great reads. I love the Mid Coast. All right. Here's our next one. 
Thanks for this great service. Comps are hard. Sent Up a Lie is a multi-point of view, dual-timeline speculative thriller. Cat was raised in San Francisco by a taciturn single dad. Now he's dead under mysterious circumstances and her memory is toast. Cat wallows in a toxic stew of tequila and double espressos until her best friend delivers an ultimatum. Cat results to clean up by detoxing, unleashes her empathic synesthesia and ability to smell people's emotions. And now Cat is running for her life from an aging oligarch and mob boss who ties to her mother that date back to Prague in the 1980s. Cat's mother is the source of Cat's psychic power and she faces an impossible choice. Finally learning who she is and where she came from or seeking justice for her dad. Like The Long Kiss Goodnight, a classic movie starring Gina Davis, my story features a woman with amnesia living a normal life until something triggers a forgotten special skill. I lean into town of French for tone and plot twistiness, and the particular sadness of Lemon Cake centers on a young woman with empathic synesthesia, but is far more literary. I'd love a speculative thriller with a female protagonist all of the Netflix series Jessica Jones, also looking for dual timeline comps that contrast female power then and now. Thanks so much. Okay, so this one is testing me because I feel like I've got Long Kiss Goodnight, I've got Jessica Jones... But it is very specific. And so I really had to sort of rack my brain to think of what might work. Everything I thought of, all of the speculative thrillers with psychic abilities, everything was, was too old and not super concerned with like female power, the way this one sounds like it is. So I would focus on the female power angle and the tone and the pacing, the feeling if you can't get that psychic part exactly right. It sounds a little bit too, to me, like Alias one of my favorite shows. There's no psychic ability there, but there is like, you know, the most badass of badass protagonists. There is a taciturn single dad. There is a very complicated mother who we can't decide should, do we want to connect with our mom or do we want to, you know, disconnect from her forever? So I feel a little bit of an alias vibe, not a book, but another potential pop culture comp. And I always mention Blake Crouch for speculative thrillers because to my mind, he does them so right. He's got the pacing right. Like they just, they read so action packed and he does the speculative angles feel so grounded and so real. So I would see if any of Blake Crouch's feel right in terms of that. And then the one that I think might be the most correct and the most spot on is it just came out. It's called The Dead Take the A-Train by Cassandra Kaw and Richard Cadre. And it is described in the publisher copy as Neil Gaiman meets Jessica Jones. So that tells me that we're on the right track here. We put that in the sci-fi and fantasy section. I was making sure that it's not in horror because both Cassandra Call and Richard Cadre also write horror. But the main character is like a hot mess of a 20-something, which sounds like maybe our protagonist here is engaged in some self-destructive behavior and figuring things out at the beginning. So that might work. I have heard that it is very, it's graphic. So the tone, it might skew too graphic, but take a look at the dead, take the A train, because I think that might be the most recent spot on comp. Wonderful. Here's our next one. Hi, I'm looking for help on my commercial fiction book. It is about a woman who's married to a guy that has a major gambling addiction. He racks up a ton of debt. They get divorced and his bookies come after her and beat her up at her job. She loses her job, but she's on the hook for his debt and has to figure out how to come up with the money to make her payments each month to them so they don't come after her or her family, her parents. And she decides to try her hand at prostitution one night after she's propositioned at a bar, but that's not the right fit. And then she starts a sex business, basically like live sex performances. 
Right now, my comp I'm using is Molly's Game. It's about a woman that runs an underground poker ring, but it's a movie and it's pretty old. But that's a very spot on comp, but I really need help with book comps. It's not really a woman coming of age. It's more of a drama. Okay, so Molly's Game, I love that. My husband loves that movie. So it has been on in the background many times over the years. And it actually was a book. It was the the movie Molly's Game was based on a book. Molly Bloom wrote her own memoir and then her memoir was adapted into the movie. So I think you could use, it's, it's old now, but I think you could use that because it does seem like that captures the spirit of this woman and what she's accomplishing here. Two that are more recent that I think also might capture that same like entrepreneurial spirit on the edges of the law are Counterfeit by Kirsten Chen, which is newly out in paperback. And that is about women who are running like a counterfeit handbag ring. That's who's like fairly commercial and might not, you know, it's, they're not, it's not quite as scandalous as a live sex performance company, but I would look at Counterfeit. And then next is nonfiction, but I think it could work since Molly's game feels so spot on. And it's Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the jazz age by Debbie Applegate, which just came out last year or this year. And it's the true story of of a madam named Polly Adler in the jazz age. And it's how she sort of came from very little and built a brothel empire might be too strong of a word, but certainly like a very strong fortune in, in brothels and hobnob with all kinds of famous people during the day. But that one, that might be a historical comp that could work as well. Yeah, that brought to mind Kate Atkinson's last one, which also had a very powerful madam. What was that one called? But that was also historical fiction. Yes. And I still haven't read that one. So I still need to read it. Shines of Deity. Oh, and you don't get any better than Kate Atkinson. So yeah, I, I read that one and loved it. She's absolutely incredible. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Hello, comp connoisseur. I am humbly requesting a preteen sleuth. The only one that I know of who is a preteen sleuth written for adults is Alan Bradley's Sweetness of Bottom of Pie, Flavia Deleuze. But I am hoping that you know of more. I do not want this to be read by preteens, though. That is the tricky bit. Thanks very much. All right. A preteen sleuth. This is tough. And like you, I immediately think of Alan Bradley's The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie and Flavia Deleuze. I don't know. I do not know of other books written for adults featuring a preteen sleuth, preteen detective. A couple that may come close. Mother Daughter Murder Night by Nina Simon just came out. And that one features three generations of women who are solving mysteries, a grandmother, a mother, and then the youngest generation is a teenage girl. So she's not a preteen, but she is young and spunky. So it's possible that one has enough of the element to maybe make it worth your while. I love to mention the Cash Black Bear series by Marcy Rendon. It's fantastic. A detective you've never read before, an amateur detective you've never read before in Cash Black Bear. And she is 18, 19, but again, not preteen. And then I thought too of maybe The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon could be a little too old. It is more literary fiction than it is a mystery, although there is a mystery at the center. It's a young narrator. He's 14 or 15 in the book, and it's very much written for adults, adult literary fiction, but it's got this young voice. So maybe consider that one as well. Yeah, that voice is neurodiverse, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mark Haddon's. Okay, here's our second last one. 
Hi, I'm seeking comps for my standalone literary fiction novel title, The Box. Completed just over 96,000 words, The Box is about a high-powered African-American magazine executive who attempts to understand her lifelong struggle with depression. While finally hanging a painting her mother gifted her just before her death, Mia finds a note tucked inside the photo frame from her mother, instructing her to find a box that will explain her mother's complicated past. This motivates Mia to make peace with her estranged father and sister, who are both unwilling to help Mia in her quest. When she finally finds the box, she learns a dark family secret that drives her into a deep depression from which there seems no way out. My comps include Queenie by Candace Cardi-Williams and Eleanor Oliphant are completely is completely fine by Gail Honeyman, in which both novels feature protagonists whose past traumas involving their mothers affect the way they interact with people. I was wondering if those were good comps and if you can think of any others that feature African Americans or other people of color. Thank you so much for all you do for the writing community. Here we have the box, and I think that the mention of both Queenie and Eleanor Oliphant make a lot of sense. I love both of those books, and I see where the author's going with the connection there. Two others that I would add to that, Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. So in that one, it's two siblings who are dealing with their mother's posthumous secrets and reckoning with those secrets and trying to see how that affects their their current relationships. But I immediately, as you were describing it, you know, you find this box from her mother and learning about what went on in the past. I immediately thought of Black Cake. That was one of Obama's favorite books the year that it came out, which I think was, I think it was 20, it was 2021 or 2022. It came out in paperback within the last year. And then another one that I would suggest is Mame by Jessica George, which I adored. She's sort of like a, I don't know, like a less edgy Queenie, but I think Queenie is a good comp in some ways to Mame. In Mame, we have a young woman who is is definitely figuring things out, definitely coming of age. And she's dealing with the ramifications of her. Her mother has died. She's taking care of her dad. And I think her mother's died or her mother is absent. Don't quiz me on that. In any case, I think that both Black Cake and Mame might work here as well. Okay, here's the last one. Hello, I am looking for comps for my contemporary middle grade retelling of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, set in a Midwestern Renaissance festival. It tells a story of 12-year-old Daria Gray, whose family works at the Renfest and who has her portrait drawn by a mysterious caricaturist. When Daria falls under the influence of a charismatic older teen, she starts to make bad decisions and her portrait morphs into something demonic. The portrait is the only speculative element in the story, but the overall setting feels magical because it is set in a Renfest. There's a strong coming of age and facing up to responsibilities theme in the story, and it has mildly creepy elements without getting dark. My current comps are Midsummer's Mayhem by Rajani LaRocca, as well as All's Fair in Middle School by Victoria Jameson, but my story is not a graphic novel. I'd love any recent comps of lightly magical middle grade retellings or books with similar vibes. Thanks! Okay, I'm glad you mentioned Midsummer's Mayhem and All's Fair in Middle School. Of course, as soon as you said Ren Fair, I thought of All's Fair in Middle School, understanding, of course, that yours is not a graphic novel. I still think All's Fair in Middle School is probably a great comp. And kids these days, they read the graphic novels in the same way or that they read chapter books, if not more voraciously. So I think that's a great comp. And so I was trying to think of other lightly magical middle grade. These aren't retellings, but I think they'll have the right feel. The first one is a little too old, but it could it could work. It's Circus Mirandus by Cassie Beasley, which feels very realistic, except that there is possibly this magical circus that they're trying to find. And I thought the circus could, it could be the right balance between reality and magic. And the circus might also provide a Ren Faire-esque setting and vibe. 
more recent is The Lost Library by Rebecca Stead and Wendy Moss, both of whom are wonderful in their own right together, magic, no pun intended. And that this is again, a book that feels realistic, but here there's one magical element and it is like a little free library. So again, I think it might be the right mix of, you know, magic, but not hardcore. It's a fantasy world that could be the right mix and right tone. And that's all for us this month. Yeah, when you were mentioning the graphic novels and how kids sort of consume it voraciously, it made me think that I saw somebody post that the Goodreads Reader Choice Award has dropped graphic novels as a category this year, which is really disappointing. It is disappointing. And, you know, we talk a lot in the store, we'll have parents and grandparents come in and they're like, they will only read, our kids will only read graphic novels and we want them to read real books. Well, graphic novels are real books too. I am not much of a graphic novel reader in part because I think my brain only, I cannot both read the words and look at the pictures at the same time. But for kids who have grown up reading them and reading that way, it's a whole different way of reading and it uses your brain in a really expansive way and they get to become, they appreciate the art and there's plenty of good adult literary fiction in graphic novels too. So I'm a big, I'm a big champion of that. And we, we try to come to the defense of the graphic novel in our store. Yeah. I wonder what their reasoning was for that. All right, so for our listeners, we are taking a break in December. There will not be a comps segment or a Q&A in December, but we will be back in January. So that gives you some time to put together your request. Remember, go to our website, The Shit About Writing. Go to the tab that says Submit a Question, and you will record your message then. And Emily looks forward to answering it in January. I do indeed. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, we have two awesome guests joining us today. The first is the internationally best-selling author of Asia at Last, Hannah Khan Carries On, and Much Ado About Nada. A high school teacher, she has also written a regular column for the Toronto Star and contributed to The Atlantic. Her first novel was optioned for film by Pascal Pictures, and her second novel was optioned for film by Carling International and Amazon Studios. She lives with her family just outside Toronto, where she also teaches high school. So that is our first guest, Uzma Jaladadin. And then our second guest is Marissa Stapley, who is the New York Times bestselling author of the Reese's Book Club pick Lucky, as well as international bestsellers, Mating for Life, Things to Do When It's Raining, The Last Resort, and The Lightning Bottles. She has also co-written The Holiday Swap and All I Want for Christmas under the pen name Maggie Knox. Many of her novels have been optioned for television, and her journalism has appeared in publications across North America. She lives in Toronto with her family. So first, I'm going to welcome Marissa. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. Thanks for having me and Uzma. And it's wonderful having you back again. And Uzma, welcome back to the show as well. Thanks, Bianca. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, so for our listeners, I'm going to read you the back copy from Three Holidays and a Wedding. So as strangers and seatmates Miriam Aziz and Anna Gibson fly to Toronto over the holidays, Miriam to her sister's impromptu wedding and Anna to meet her boyfriend's wealthy family for the first time, neither expect that severe turbulence will scare them into confessing their deepest hopes and fears. At least they'll never see each other again. And the love of Miriam's life safe wasn't sitting two rows behind them hearing it all. Oops, an emergency landing finds Anna, Saif and Miriam and her sister's entire bridal party snowbound at the quirky Snow Falls Inn in a picture-perfect town where fate has Anna's actor crush filming a holiday romance. 
As Miriam finds the courage to open her heart to Sayif and Anna feels the magic of being snowbound with an unexpected new love, both women soon realize there's no place they'd rather be for the holidays. So as you can hear, really fun, warm and fuzzy, so much to unpack there. So right, you both are very well established and successful authors in your own right. And I imagine that you each have your own way of doing things. And it must be an adjustment to sit down and create with another author who already is established. Now, Uzma, this was your first collaboration, so I'm interested to hear how you approached it. Sure, Bianca. Uh, you know what? I, I never thought that I would collaborate on a book. And when Marissa first broached the idea, I was like, let me think about it. I think I said, uh, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks just making sure that this is something that I want to do. And then I thought, you know what? Sometimes writers, we get, we, we are literally, we live in our own heads for so much of the time. And I thought it'll be really interesting to kind of on that day by day, page by page, chapter by chapter level, be able to, to compare notes with someone and check in with someone because I have writer friends, but it's not the same thing as having a writing partner. So I was really excited to dive in and the experience was wonderful. Awesome. You know, it, it got me thinking. So last night I was speaking to a whole bunch of musicians and it made me realize how different art forms, some are very collaborative, you know, and Marissa, you'll know this, especially having written the lightning bottles and talking about bands and music, etc. But for writers, it is so solitary in general. Like we sit down with our imaginary friends and we create and we're not bouncing ideas off of other people. So Marissa, you've done this before. Did you find the second go around easy or is it a case of with each new person you collaborate with, you've got to recalibrate the way you approach it and the way you think about it? No, honestly, it was, I think, partially easier because I had done it before. So I know a few of the tips and tricks of collaborating on a on a novel, which which I think the number one thing is have a really good outline and figure that out together before you start writing. And of course, things will change. Things always change on the page. And I think that's kind of part two, which is you have to be flexible and have a good sense of humor about things. But I, I also think you never know. It is a risk. It's like any relationship. You, you go into it and you think, I really hope this works out. I'm going to do my best. But with Usman and I, it turned out it just worked so beautifully. We have have the same work ethic, which is important. And Uzma is very, she, she has a great sense of humor and a great work ethic, but also very easygoing. And we kept up with each other. We found it exciting and it, it just went so incredibly smoothly. We, we had a great time. So as soon as you say you've got to have a great outline, I'm already like, okay, I can never collaborate with someone because I am a pantser and I cannot do the outlining. I cannot do the plotting. So, but both of you are plotters and outliners, right? So it already predisposes you to that. What do you say, Uzma? So I feel like one of the things that I learned from this experience was like to actually stick to an outline. And Marissa is really good at, I think, you know, right after we we settled on this project, the very next day she started outlining and then I jumped in and I, I was like, wow, this is a really detailed outline. It was like chapter by chapter. This is what happens with still enough room to kind of play. So I really appreciated that because my approach to, I think I'm at heart a pantser as well, but just in order to meet my deadlines, I, I have become an outline which is like, I think uh, so many writers say, right? Like the minute you have someone waiting for your work, you have to become an outliner. And then what usually happens is that I outline a book and then when I start drafting it, my outline kind of goes out the window and I veer off into the creative forest, right? But when you're working with someone else, you really have to stick to the outline. And I think that's one thing that I learned is A, how to write a really 
complete and interesting outline and then B, how to stick to it. Because Marissa kept saying, we have to stick to the outline. We have to stick to the outline. And I was like, okay, okay. Marissa said, we have to stick to the outline and I'm going to stick to the outline. But it was, it ended up being so much, it was, it was a really joyful experience actually putting this book together. It flowed really well. I think our senses of humor actually aligned. So we made each other laugh a lot on the page. And yeah, and you, you know, I never thought of it that way, but you're right. We both have this work ethic, right? I, at the time I was, I mean, I'm still a teacher, but I was, teaching during the days and then the evenings I'd come in. So we had like a shared Google doc and Marissa would sort of be drafting in the morning. And then after I kind of did my shift at work and then came home and did like the afternoon shift with the kids in the evening, I'd be drafting. So it kind of really worked out even from a schedule perspective. Yeah, that work ethic is so important because you have to be carrying your weight equally. But you know, just in terms of the the outlining and sticking to the outline. So with my latest novel, this is the first time I've done an outline. And it wasn't even an outline at the beginning. I reverse outlined. I got to the middle and I was like, oh my God, I've got so many threads hanging. I don't know what the hell's going on here. And then I had to do an outline. But even having done that, I got to the 80,000 word mark and then had a huge epiphany that made me have to go back and start again and change so much. So, so much of writing is pivoting. Was there an instance in which when you were writing, Marissa, where it was one of you had an epiphany and it was like, okay, we're not going to stick to the outline. We are going to pivot because this makes a lot of sense. Or is it a case of your outline was so strong that you didn't sort of need those moments to go, okay, this is going to make the work stronger? I think, and I will say, by the way, I love pantsing myself. I used to just write like a lean, mean on my own. I'll just do like a 40,000 word draft that no one should ever see. And and the retroactive outline is something that I do. So I'll go back and do an outline for a second draft. I cannot imagine writing anything that wasn't genre fiction with a partner because I think in as much as we, we poured our hearts and, and our personalities into this novel, but also it is a rom-com and a holiday rom-com. So there is a certain formula. So I don't think that at any point we were like, oh my gosh, these characters' motivations are completely different than we thought. Like we always knew who we were dealing with. And also we were heading towards the happiest ending we could think of. So I think that saves you. Plus we also, I think we did half, we outlined and sold it. Then we did half. I think our editors even gave us feedback on the outline. So it's a little bit different there too. So they provided suggestions and I think we had all our epiphanies up front. And then we wrote half and outlined the rest, showed it to the editors, and then finished it. So I think under normal circumstances, you're right, that would happen and it would be a total disaster or maybe not a disaster, but challenging. Um, but in this case, we, we really worked in a way that, that really made it quite seamless and very joyful and so fun. So in terms of the deadline, so you gave your publisher an outline, they gave you some feedback. I want to discuss the deadline, but I'm going off on a tangent here because I read a tweet this morning that horrified me that apparently some big publishers are now using artificial intelligence to review manuscripts as they come in to decide if they're going to publish them to see if they're hitting all the, the marks that they feel like the story should be hitting and whether the language is going to appeal to the general public. And that to me is just horrifying because think about literary novels where you're using experimental language etc etc so so that's just an aside I want you both to be equally horrified but in terms of your 
deadline, how much time did you have from start to finish, Uzma? I'm trying to think now. So it was a little bit complicated for, for me because I had already sold my, it was a two book deal with HarperCollins Canada and Berkeley. And I was working on the second book of the two book deal. And I think that's why I needed some time to think of Marissa. I was actually thinking about this the other day. So we sold this book in February and then they wanted a first half by, I think in the summer, it was July, but I couldn't even work on it until we didn't start working on this until May end of May. I remember we wrote this book in three months, all told, but it was three months spread out over about four or five months, I think, because I was working on Much Ado About Nada and, and the final drafts, like the second round of edits for that. So we sold it in February. So I was working on that until February, March, April. No, April was Ramadan. And I was like, I cannot fast and also draft a book at the same time. It's not possible. So the minute Ramadan was done around April-ish, I think is when we started on three holidays in a wedding. And we handed in the first half. And then after we got some feedback from our editors who were amazing at Putnam and Penguin Canada, then we finished the second half and then we handed that in in September. That's, that's I think that was a timeline, right, right Marissa? So it was pretty quick. I, I've never written a book this fast, let me tell you. <laughs> it was technically it's half a book, but I don't think it's really half a book because when you're working with someone, yes, you're responsible for your portion of it, but you're also responsible for the entire tone and world building of the whole book. So Marissa was giving me feedback and you know, kind of jumping on the page and we were rewriting each other's stuff in a, in a way that I felt was very collaborative. And we really worked on the entire text together. But yeah, it was really fast and very intense. And I will add something that because I've done two holiday rom-coms, so I know these deadlines are unmovable. I think we, as authors, and even when you're working on your own, if you haven't had a book published yet, you can move your deadline around. But these deadlines for the holiday books are are not movable because it has to come out at the very latest like late October and ideally earlier than that, because it's, you know, the sale window is, is over on New Year's Day, basically. So our deadlines were not negotiable, except sometimes within like a couple of days or maybe a week. And our editor was always like, that's fine. But, you know, and I was used to it, but I think as well, I was like, this is kind of crazy, but we still, we managed it. And I think, again, that outline and knowing where we were going did help us immeasurably. Yeah, I mean, that's your roadmap. It makes sure that, you know, you're getting to your destination when you need to. So in terms of who wrote what, I love what Uzma just said in that you were editing each other's work. So I was thinking, okay, it would make sense for Marissa to write Anna's chapters and it would make sense for Uzma to write Miriam's chapters. Is that how it started? And then you kind of collaborated on editing each other's work to make sure that your voices were consistent throughout, Marissa? Yeah, absolutely. So Anna had some parallels in my own life, raised in a multicultural home, multi-faith home, as I was with a, a Jewish stepmother and a and a minister stepfather and sort of spiritually seeking dad and a pretty devout Christian mom. So all of that combined to create Anna and then Uzma created Mariam and we then, as you as you said, and as Asma said, we started helping each other out and with approval, you know, editing each other's chapters. And it, it was a smooth process. Yeah, like basically I would write a chapter and, and I think it was something like, okay, we're we're going to hand in the first, it was, it's a 20 chapter book. So we're each doing 10 chapters, point of view character chapters. And the first five chapters were like, we, we worked on it for, I think it was like, okay, let's, let's 
work on our chapter for this week. We'll post it by the end of the week. And then that's how we wrote it so quickly. And yeah, it, it was it was very simple because I was working on the Muslim character. I always love to write people with a lot of family dynamics happening. And I know Marissa does as well. And I also really enjoy writing multi-generational families. So Mariam is a second generation immigrant. She's South Asian, just like me. She's Hyderabadi, specifically from the, the city of Hyderabad in India, just like me. And she's very close to her grandfather, who is also on the trip with her so you know you have like the kind of adorable grandfather antics and then a little bit of like the tension with the parents over various particular things and the movie Encanto had come out I think around that time and I I was listening to this song on repeat from the movie it, it's called Surface Pressure and the movie is told from the generation of a Latinx family Everyone should watch it if you haven't. It's on Disney+. Plus. But that song in particular is about the burden and responsibility carried by the eldest daughter of immigrants. And as the eldest daughter of an immigrant family, I it really resonated with me. And then I thought, I'm going to make this sort of Mariam story. Like, what are the responsibilities and burdens carried by the eldest daughter in an immigrant family? So that was kind of like her through line. And I really wanted to explore that. But yeah, in terms of just the editing aspect, I think we were really comfortable just reading over each other's work. And it wasn't like we weren't necessarily doing line edits for each other, but it was more structural edits. Like, okay, does this line up? So I would paste my chapter, Marissa would paste her chapter. We would read each other's work, make sure that it aligned in terms of, you know, things like, like the copy editing stuff, timeline. Is this something that your character would say? But for the most part, I think we were on the same page because of that really strong outline about who these characters are, what they want. And so of course the tone is gonna come from each individual author who's writing and experiencing this character. But I think by the end of it, we were both able to write each other's characters as well to a certain extent. I wanna add one more thing. If you can find a writing partner who's a high school English teacher, do that. <laughs> It was amazing. Like the things she fixed and I was like, oh, this is great. So I'm, I'm, I was always like, I'm really more big picture <laughs> and you're more detail on the line. So that was, that was great. I loved that. <laughs> That's awesome. Cause that was a question that I wanted to ask because I think a writing partnership works well when one person has certain strengths that are another person's, you know, I don't want to say weaknesses, but not the things that they focus on so much. I think it's harder if you have a writing partnership where you both are big picture and neither of you really focusing on grammar or whatever, or if you're both really good at dialogue, for example, but not really good at emotionality or interiority. Something Uzma said there about, you know, the pressure put on the daughter of immigrants, etc. I'm loving seeing these kinds of bigger things themes coming through in rom-coms. And I actually want to read a quote from an article that Emily Henry wrote for Time, I think it was. And she says, yeah, I didn't know then what I know now. I didn't understand the true power or even the purpose of that familiar phrase, happily ever after. I wanted to be a pile of sand I could bury my head under and instead it was a shovel with the promise of some semblance of a happy ending for my main characters, I could dig deeper and deeper into their pain. I could explore their grief and their loss and all the ways the world had let them down and most of all their fear that maybe in the end it's not worth it, that the pain of loving might outweigh the bliss of it. And that really got me thinking because so many people are dismissive of rom-coms. It's like, oh, it's fluffy, it's whatever. But what she said there is so true because if the reader knows that there's going to be this happy ending, I feel like they're more able to go on that journey and feel the pain with the characters more because they're not going oh my god how is this going to end is this going to depress me for all eternity like you know some of these books they're able to say I can experience this because I know at the end it's going to be okay so Uzma your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Emily Henry and everything that she writes. And and, and I, I always think about that when I'm reading her books. Like I remember the first time I read Beach Read. She did such a wonderful job of exploring the grief after a parent's passing. And yet it was an incredibly romantic and, and swoon-worthy read. And of course, she's an excellent writer. I think that's a really good point. When I saw that, I think she posted about it on Instagram. When I saw that, I thought I was like, she, she really hit the nail on the head. Because we know that when writing a romance, there's only two key ingredients, right? The the main plot should focus on the main relationship, and there is a happily ever after or a happy for now by the end of the book. So it's it's almost like a contract that you enter into with your readers. They know and anticipate that this is the end result, and so they're willing to go with you on that ride and maybe explore different avenues of communication, different avenue, different topics that maybe they themselves perhaps are dealing with, because they know that this is not going to end in disaster. And I thought it was really sharp and smart thing that Emily Henry kind of put into words. But I think that's something that a lot of romance writers, a lot of rom-com writers in particular are trying to do because yes, there's fluffy books are super fun. I love them. I read them all the time. But then you also have the rom-coms and romances that are trying to deal with more serious topics, whether it's something about community and identity or a universal feeling such as grief. Marissa? Yes, I saw that yesterday and I am with Osma. I mean, I think that Emily Henry is so piercingly intelligent and also hilariously funny. And there is a lot of emotional heft to her novels. I find myself thinking often of the fact that the rom-com has replaced what used to be called chiclet and ro- romances as well, a certain kind. But I think there, there's a certain, there's got to be a bit of levity. And I just... I love the way now we're digging deep and we're having time think pieces by one of our, you know, revered rom-com authors talking about this and digging into real life stuff. And I think that it means, because I always fear, you know, Chicklet kind of went the way of the dodo bird at one point and nobody wanted it. And now I I fear that the same could happen with rom-coms, except that there are such intelligent novelist speaking the way Emily is and also doing things like Usman and I did which is say to ourselves okay we're we're tur- we're doing a holiday rom-com but we're not just doing a holiday rom-com we're including multi-faith and we're exploring belonging and what it means and you know the experience of Mariam being that eldest daughter in an immigrant family and my character exploring her grief and I think you can do that and as you said but that contract we've entered into means happily ever after, but it isn't just trite because it's also saying this is possible. You can go through this and everything is going to be okay. Yeah. You know, I was trying to think the other day, I never used to read sort of romance or whatever the equivalent was of rom-com when I was sort of in my twenties. And now I do. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think Back then, what bugged me is that the whole emphasis was on a woman was not complete until she had found this man. Her life didn't have value. It didn't matter how successful she was. She needed to find this man. And what we're seeing now, we're not seeing that anymore. We are seeing women who are successful, who are complete, who have been through things and who still have come out of it on the other side, who are strong. And they've got so much else that they're dealing with. And there's love and finding the man or the woman or, you know, just the love of their life. And that's what I'm really enjoying about it now. It's not this focus on you need this love to complete you. It is that there's a lot going on and you are also finding this love. Uzma? I did spend my 20s reading those novels. (laughs) There's like a whole collection of them. Most of the authors, of course, are kind of, they've been lost to my memories. But of course, it's the usual, the Bridget Jones series, of course, the Shopaholic series. I loved Meg Cabot. All of those books were so, so fun. But yet you're right. The emphasis was on, here's a usually like a, a, a single young professional 
starting off in a career has some kind of workplace challenges to a certain extent, but the, the focus is on finding this, this perfect person to complete them. And it was a formula that worked really well, I think, for its time. But I maybe it's age, I don't know what it is, but it, it feels like we, we live in a much more complicated world. And so romantic comedies, as it were, have kind of also, to some extent, grown with the genre, which I think is something really important. I think what readers and writers have realized is that escapist literature can also say something right and and i i hate even using that term because i think i mean escapist literature is something that a term that's put on the romantic genre and the commercial fiction genre but really a literary novel can be escapist literature too but specifically romantic comedies in this particular genre we can say something and also entertain and also provide this swoony romantic you know butterfly in the stomach kind of feeling and at the same time have real world implications you know so many people read romance novels and say i read this during a really difficult time in my life and it helped a lot right? It's a refrain that I keep hearing about, like, I could identify with this, or I needed this reprieve from my life because my life was so hard. And yet, at the same time, I think the books themselves can have that same message of survival, of resilience, and really joy and love above all. Yeah, 100%. And Mercy, you and I have spoken a lot before about the sort of literary snobbery that occurs in terms of, well, you know, if it's not this, it's not literature and not worth reading. So your last thoughts on that. Right. And there's still, I mean, I wonder sometimes because we get in our bubbles now. So I think to myself, I think it's getting better. I think that there isn't so much snobbery around genre fiction. And then I realize actually there is, it's just, I no longer surround myself with people who, who feel that way or pay attention to the words of people who feel that way, because it's just, it's so silly. I mean, I've long been a huge advocate and proponent for the fact that Canadian commercial fiction is absolutely world-class. And I, feel like my work is done. I mean, look at what we're producing now and it's coming out and you don't have to to go elsewhere. You can, if you want, read whatever you want, but it's very strong. And yeah, I just, I guess I don't have time for that disparagement anymore. And as you said, I mean, I think if something makes you happy or makes you think or makes you feel or you enjoy it, that you should have absolutely no shame about reading it. I'm pretty happy that I don't know anybody who feels that way anymore. So... <laughs> Yeah, no more guilty pleasures when it comes to reading. And for our listeners, I honestly believe that every single genre you read has got something to teach you about the craft of writing, and it's got something to teach you about the world and about yourself. So read widely, read outside your genre. There's always so much to learn from from other authors. Marissa and Uzma, thank you so, so much for joining us. I absolutely loved chatting with you both. Thank you, Bianca. This was wonderful. Thank you, Bianca. Hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit, 
feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Welcome everyone to a very special episode in which I get to chat with one of my favorite people ever. So Dr. Tracy Dalgleish is a clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and sought after relationship expert. She is the founder of Be Connected Digital and the owner of a mental health clinic, Integrated Wellness. You can follow her on Instagram at Dr. Tracy D. She is also the author of I Didn't Sign Up For This, a couples therapist shares real life stories of breaking patterns and finding joy in relationships, including her own, which if you follow the podcast, that means, you know, she is my dear, dear client. And I am so lucky to get to welcome her so we can chat together. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Cece, for having me here. It is surreal to be able to sit here on your podcast, meaning that I am a published author. So this is just such a cool moment for me, knowing that I listened to the podcast well before the book came out, well before I pitched you. So this is just such a gift. Tell our listeners how we met. Oh, goodness. Interesting terms. I I stalked you on Instagram. (laughs) Is that really how we met? I feel like I stalked you. (laughs) (laughs) We found each other and I took several of your webinars and, and then I pitched you and that's how we met. And I think you and I just had this great fit between us. You were, you are everything that I look for in someone to work beside with an agent and you, you know, the biggest thing that stood out for me, Cece, with you was just how much you were willing to sit beside me in this process and to push me into doing something that was hard because I was trying to walk this safe, comfortable line and you said, let's walk this hard line. And that that's where this book came from. Well, the credit is all yours because, so for our listeners, I, I remember seeing your name, Tracy, in my From Memories to Memoir webinar. That was it. And your name stood out. 
probably because I already followed you on social media. So of course, like when you see a name that you already follow on social media, you're like, oh, that's the person. Could that be the person? It is. And then I read your great query letter, which I've read in the podcast. So if you're a super fan, you know, you've heard this, this query letter before to all our listeners out there who are super fans. And I remember thinking like, this is everything I want in a nonfiction book because my, my jam is nonfiction that reads like fiction. I want books that will help people and make people get tools to live a better life, but also that are going to entertain them through stories because I believe that learning through stories is a huge part of the human experience. So, so I was super happy. I remember that we had a long, long Zoom call. Like it was so long. We would not stop talking. <laughs> I, I think I had to like cancel my call that I had after yours. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm I'm in a meeting. And I and I made it so that the meeting was like really boring, but it wasn't. I was just saying that to be polite to the next person. <laughs> so and then we had like a super long Zoom call and and we started working on your book together. And this was was this 2021? Is that right? Yes. I sent the query in May 2021. And then we signed within a month and away we went. And six months later, you pitched the proposal and signed, we signed a contract and then there we go. So I was writing the book in the summer of 2022. And two months ago, I got to go to your book launch and we got to take a picture together and it was just the very best. So, you know, to all our listeners out there, I know that for so many of you, this is a dream, right? Like working with an agent, not necessarily me, just an agent that you love and getting your book published and know that it's a dream on the other end as well. Know that for us agents, it's also a dream to work with a dream client and get to work on a dream book. And however, as all dreams, (laughs) there's always the dream and reality, which actually is why one of the things that I really want to talk to you about. So, So your book is about relationships and we get to meet Emily and Matt. We get to meet Ashley. We get to meet Kareen and Peter. And we get to meet Lydia and Sam. But there's also a fifth relationship that we meet, which is you, right? Like your marriage, your story, your your romantic relationship and all that goes into it. And I pitch this book as maybe you should talk to someone by Lori Gottlieb meets How to Do the Work by Nicola Perra because there are so many stories and the stories are focused on both these couples and on yourself. And there's also actionable tools at the end of each chapter on how you can improve your relationship. For anyone listening, my husband read the book and now he tries to tell me when I need the tools. Fun story for next time. He, the other day he was like, you should use an ice cube because it feels, and I'm like, no, that's not what Dr. Tracy meant when she wrote the book. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So we, we meet all these people from different backgrounds and different moments in life, but they are all going through, they're going through different challenges, but all their challenges have one thing in common. Their relationship no longer feels like the one they said yes to. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your process in writing the book, in figuring out what stories to use, why you chose to do it in this way, what is it about storytelling that stood out to you? Because you could have written a purely clinical book, which by the way, these books are also awesome, right? Like, and I also hope that one day you write that book, but you just frame it through storytelling. And I'm wondering why. I often think of some of those sticking moments with clients. And the therapy intervention is called a disquisition. 
And so in emotionally focused couples therapy, if I'm really stuck with my partners in front of me or with one partner, I will use a disquisition, which is I tell a story about a client that I've worked with that is similar to their experience with maybe some slight variation. And the idea of that intervention is to hold up a mirror and to reflect something to them in hopes that they could say, hmm, yeah, you know, that does sound a little bit like me. And yes, I do see how that impacts me. And I maybe I do that too. And I know this as a therapist. I tell stories all day long. I'm hearing stories all day long. We learn we we are made of stories. We build narratives from our early childhood experiences. Some of those are given to us by our caregivers, by friends, by teachers. We continue to tell those stories to ourselves and then we go on to tell those stories to other people in our life to include them to get to get them to know us. And so through stories we learn. We are much more open to understanding who we are, why we do the things we do, and what we maybe need to do to do differently. I always love how Lori Gottlieb in her book had said that insight is the booby prize of therapy. And it's true. It's one thing to have that piece of insight. And yet at the same time, we need to find the actions and the steps to move forward. So the process of writing this book was really about sitting back and saying, what are those common presentations that show up in my therapy room? And how do all of these stories come together to shape what I want people to learn? And it's so interesting to hear the feedback from people because one of the most common things I hear is, oh, I see a little bit of me in all of them. And many actually are saying to me, which, which is part of that vulnerability of showing up in this in this book, is actually, I was the most interested in your story. And oh, actually, I relate a lot to your story. And so it just came back to the, what are those common everyday challenges I see in the therapy room? And what are those common root causes that show up? We can look at people in, in only so many ways. What's your attachment style? What's the strategy you go to when you're stressed? What are those family dynamics that lead to some of that? And what are even parts of our personality and those dispositions that show up that contribute to those problems? And then what are those negative relationship cycles that we get into? So Cece, I know you saw this. I had a long roadmap. It was my kids' big easel paper that we had actually found in the recycling bin one day. My kids loved it all throughout COVID, drawing all over the place. I took out a long piece, brought it into my office, and sat on the floor and just mapped out who are these people. And I actually sat with each client and I said, well, I went for, for people who are curious about the personality structure, I went through the big five personality structure, which is the most researched way of looking at personality. And I looked at that in terms of how agreeable is this person? How open are they? How neurotic are they? I went through that. What's their attachment style? What do they do to cope? And I mapped it out. And then I mapped out those series of events where I could tell it in the story format so that the reader wanted to continue through the story with me. And so we could see the change of how each person changed or the, the, the pathway of how each person changed. I love that so much. And I feel like there's, you know, for, for anyone listening, if you're looking to build characters and that's, that's everyone's job, if you're writing fiction, right? Like you have to create a human being and you have to give them an inner life, not just an external life, but an inner life. A really interesting thing about your book is that it can also be used as a resource because you get to see, like you said, the big five personality traits and also how they 
a lot of similar personality traits manifest themselves so differently because of background. And in story, like in the podcast, we call that story setup. So there's a really, this is a really interesting tool. I've always been a big believer that psychology and psychology materials are a really interesting and useful tool when it comes to writing, writing any type of story, but especially fiction, because you're having to create something out of nothing. This actually leads me to to one of my questions for you, and I you'll probably find this super weird, and I'm I'm here for it. As I was rereading your book, and this time just for fun, right? Like I didn't have to give you notes, I didn't have to worry about anything. I could just read it as a reader. It struck me, and this had never occurred to me before, despite having read your book multiple times before this. It struck me how there are so many parallels between relationship challenges. And in your book, we're talking about romantic relationships, but also family, the dynamics in in society, and writing. So I don't know what it is about these two things, but maybe it's the need for vulnerability. Maybe it's the fact that fear of rejection is so much a part of both of these things. Maybe it's the fact that we all have to come to terms with the contrast and oftentimes the conflict between our dream scenario and reality. I often use dating analogies to describe traditional publishing. And I always like, that feels creepy, but it's also accurate. And I don't mean it in a creepy way at all. But yeah, actually, there's something so passion-driven and so matchmaking about my job as an agent and the book publishing industry in general. So on that note, I'm wondering, A, did you ever notice the parallel? Because you've been married for 11 years now and you were in a relationship even before that. And you had other relationships before that. And like your book teaches us, our childhood experiences influence our relationships. But as an author, you've only been doing this for a couple of years, right? So I'm wondering, did you see these parallels? Like when you went through the emotions of writing a book, pitching a book, waiting for that yes, not knowing what was going to happen, waiting for that book launch, did you see parallels? I would say I had the human experiences, but I didn't connect it to the relationship piece. I didn't make that jump. And likely because it felt so vulnerable in the writing space that I almost didn't connect it to what I do every single day. And I think what joins them together, the relationship challenges that we have and the experience of writing, it's about connection. And I'm I'm very attachment-based also for people writing. Please look at the attachment styles of your characters and and what they do in terms of their coping strategies. I love analyzing this kind of thing when I'm reading fiction especially. But so the connection is there. And what I mean by that is at our core, we want to know, do I matter? Am I important? Do I belong here? Or are you going to reject me? Am I enough? Am I worthy? And that in our writing is, is exactly what we're looking for. In, in some ways, we, we do it for ourselves, but we also want that connection with others. That is what our stories are for. That's so wise. Um, we do it for ourselves. It's true. But if it were just for ourselves, then aspiring authors listening to us now wouldn't be trying to get published right? And you do work on ourselves for ourselves, but if it was just for ourselves, we wouldn't be trying to be in a relationship. So I feel like that's, you know, so much of the parallel comes from the fact that these are two things that are passion-driven 
And as you, as, as I was reading your book and you talk about differentiation, and I'm wondering if you could explain to everyone what that means, it struck me how valuable differentiation can be when dealing with the emotional challenges that come with writing with the intention of being traditionally published. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when we are not differentiated, when we struggle with that in that separation, it becomes personal and it becomes about us. And so getting that no, which I had the no's, getting the no's can feel like, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm worthless. I'm not enough. This will never amount to anything. I should just quit. This is about me. When we are differentiated, so differentiation is the ongoing process of being able to identify, become aware of, and to make sense of your internal experiences and to recognize that your internal experience is separate and different from another person's internal experience. And even when I think of the publishing process, for someone to say no to me, one editor saying no for whatever reason... If I were to say, oh, it's because they don't like me, then that's not the sense of differentiation. But differentiation is about being able to say, this is what I believe in. This is my work. And we can look at it from a critical lens and that support with editors and drafts. But then the other piece is, this is a part of me. It doesn't define me. It's not all of me. And it's okay if I'm not everybody's cup of tea. And ultimately, this is what we're doing in differentiation. And ultimately, I think when when I wrote this book, you and I had talked about my fears around this. There are going to be some people who love the book. And I need to accept there will be people who don't accept my story as a therapist in the book. And that's okay. It's still not about me. There's a few pieces within differentiation I go through in detail in the book. But here, here's what you want to practice. First, becoming aware of what your reactions are and what's happening inside of you. You want to slow things down to be able to acknowledge that. Sometimes that is actually about pausing. When you get feedback, instead of reacting quickly, you want to slow down and tune into what is really happening here and to be really curious about that. And in that step, you might also practice that depersonalization. I'm putting my hands up with you, Cece, here. And it's like, I've got this wall here. This isn't going to filter into me. It's not about me. It's about this piece of work I'm doing, but not about me. And then that key piece with differentiation is about communication, which is what I teach you in the book. And how did that show up for you when you were writing your book in terms of the vulnerability? Because I, I don't think that it would be possible for anyone to write without being vulnerable. And at the same time, I don't think it's possible for anyone to not feel hurt when challenges come up precisely because they are being vulnerable. So how did that feel for you showing up with your vulnerability when, when you write, when you wrote this and also afterwards, because I'm sure reviews also require you to be vulnerable. Do you look at reviews? So it's a two-part question. Uh, so in terms of looking at reviews right now, yes, I am. <laughs> And, and truthfully, Cece, the reviews have been surreal and have exceeded my expectations, my hopes and dreams around it. And the book has been so well received. And so many people are saying, we needed this book. This book has information that I didn't know. This book contains pieces where I would laugh at people would say it starts in childhood. And I say, my childhood's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I see myself in these stories. And so it's been surreal. So yes, I have read the reviews. I try not to do too much of a deep dive. Whatever is there on Amazon and Goodreads, that's where I stop. And if anything else is out there, I'm not going further than that. In terms of that first piece there, the vulnerability part, 
I remember writing my messiest chapter, the chapter where I felt the most vulnerable. And it was a hard summer because it was almost like I had gone offline from life in some ways. I hadn't watched TV for five months. I think my husband, Greg, kind of felt like I was a little bit of a zombie and I was just in it. I wasn't a zombie, but I was in my book and we would be out for walks and I would be thinking more about the stories and how I was showing up and what key pieces made up different elements of the story. And chapter 13 is my messiest chapter because it goes against what I hope people would have seen of me. So one being I'm a couples therapist. I should have known better. Reflecting back to this key argument that Greg and I had around dealing with my in-laws, it was so hard to retell that story of how I had dealt with it. So when I finished the chapter, I'd actually put in notes on the side saying, this is so hard. One, my critical voice shows up and says, you knew better. Like, couldn't you have handled this differently? And this, this is what you're going to write about? This is so silly. And then the next voice showed up, and that was shame. Shame of, you're you're not a good therapist. You are defective. What are you even doing here? And I think the piece around our vulnerability is to understand that in our messiest moments, it chokes me up a little bit, in our messiest moments, that is when we bring in connection with other people. Because it says, I'm going to peel back the curtain and I'm going to say to you that your hardest and messiest moment, you are not alone in that. And others struggle in some way around that too. And every time what I'm learning is every time that I allow myself to be vulnerable, whether it's through the book or whether it's with a client where I let myself tear with them at their story that they're telling me, or if it's with a new friend, that that builds the sense of confidence and a sense of trusting myself and also deepening the work that I'm doing and deepening my relationships with other people. I love that so much. And I feel like it it speaks volumes, again, about the connection that that I finally saw between just relationships in general and and writing. Writers have to, they face so many challenges, everything from, you already talked about fear of rejection, but there's also like writer's block and imposter syndrome and just general uncertainty around the industry. There's reviews. We've also talked about that. There's balancing like the creative side of, of what you're doing with the business side of what you're doing. Not to mention comparison, right? Like comparison to other authors, comparison to like, how did you practice self-care as you were doing this? I feel like my question is assuming that you did practice self-care, but I'm going to bet that you did. How would you advise writers out there to practice self-care in the face of all these challenges? Yeah, I, I would even broaden that question into how do I ensure that I'm nurturing what is meaningful to me? And that I think is so important when we can go into a place of our values. And so while writing the book was really important, connection was also really important to me. And that anytime I would see friends or if I was out, I was writing in the summer. So if I was out on my paddleboard, that was a chance to connect with me. And we often view these moments to ourselves to look after ourselves as costing us something. It's taking away writing time. It's taking away something. But instead, we need to see the gains that we get from it. So if I was out with friends, I could hear more stories and I could be outside of the stories I was telling. If I was on my paddleboard, I would be connecting with myself, my breath, and out in nature, which is so good for creativity. And I think 
the reality of this, and, and I know this being a PhD student at one point in my life where school ruled my everyday ins and outs, but if we don't schedule something and make it a priority, it doesn't happen. And if it feels like it's too much to step away from your work, then what can be more important is using something like stacking. So seeing a friend while you're going to get the groceries or going for a walk and having the phone call with somebody that you love. I'm talking about connection as one part, but you know the other pieces of prioritizing sleep, prioritizing food, movement, those are all important pieces. I walked every morning on my writing days. It was a chance for me to connect with myself, to be out away from my phone, to be out in nature. That grounded me. And all of those drops into my bucket of me helped me then show up to my work. I love that so much. I I feel like there's a big lesson there in terms of how we can show up as our most vulnerable selves, face the challenges, and do that all in a way that still honors who we are by reminding ourselves of our values. I think that's I think that's really important. Do you have any clients who wrote books? And if you do, how does having written a book of your own change anything? Like, is there like a before and after situation that you then revisited and said, oh, I see it now? It's interesting when clients are showing up into my therapy room saying, I read your book. And I, I've looked at all of these levels of vulnerability I feel the least vulnerable with those who I'm mostly connected with in terms of my friends and family. I feel the least vulnerable with people who are part of my community online and share that they've read the book. I feel the most vulnerable with the parents at the schoolyard who I'm walking by. And I maybe we, we have the hi and how's it going? How are the kids? That kind of relationship. So more of a surface level relationship. And then also the most vulnerable with my own clients. And so the ones who have shown up have said, oh, I've read your book. And the, the expression I use or the way I work with clients is everything is grist for the mill. And so if they're bringing something to therapy, whether it's one of my stories or the fact that they want to write a book and haven't yet, it's all work that we get to do. I am the object that's bringing this up for them and we can work through that. So when, and actually it hasn't happened yet that a client has brought in like, oh, I'd like to write a book. But if that were the case, it would open up a conversation around what feelings are you having around that? What is that telling you? And even for people who, and this is, Cece, this is what I experienced before reaching out to you. I was experiencing envy of everybody else out there writing a book. Because I had dabbled, I had gone on walks with voice notes of what a chapter would include, and I just kept finding myself envious every time another colleague in psychology or as a therapist would release another book. It's like, oh gosh, that feeling. And that feeling right there tells me that I have a need, that I'm desiring something that they have and I don't have. And so the same thing in therapy. If clients are having whatever feelings it is, let's use that feeling, explore what it is, what's it telling them, and then what they need. And that is just the most powerful use of using outside information to reflect back to us something about us. I think it was Lori who said it in her book, Follow Your Envy. It shows you what you want. And I know we're both big fans of that book. So so I love that. That's that's really wise. I want to tell all our listeners that if you are 
tuning in and listening to us now, if you go on Instagram and you can either post a picture of your own or you can share the graphic attached to this episode, whatever you want, but you post and you use the hashtag writercare, which obviously stands for writer self-care, and you tag Tracy at Dr. Tracy D and you tag the podcast social media accounts. There will be a giveaway for a copy of I Didn't Sign Up For This. So if you're listening to this, do it. It's going to be valid until seven days after the episode airs. I do not know the date that this is going to air, which is why I'm not saying the date now. Bianca is the one who knows all of these fantastic content things. So yes, there you go. That's an opportunity to get a copy of this great book. I know I am biased, but I am telling you, I dare you to read this book and not be hooked. The amazing stories of all these people that we get to see and learn from and see ourselves reflected in, it's just it's just fantastic. Again, I totally recognize my bias here, but I am fine with my bias. I am still right. You can be both biased and right. <laughs> I'm so grateful that this book has come between us, like within us. It's like not between us, but this has been the piece that has brought us together and connected us. Yeah, it's it's something we share. I mean, it's obviously your book. The thing about being an agent that's so special is like, of course, like the book belongs to the client, right? Like the that that is something that is squarely the clients. But I compare it almost like being a godmother. Like my friends who have kids and I'm their their kids' godmothers, like, yeah, it's your kid, but like I feel like it's also mine. <laughs> I, I get to take no credit. I didn't do any of the work, but I still love it so much. So that's that's the best. Again, see, I'm doing the thing again where I'm I'm drawing parallels between writing and relationships. So so there we go again. Okay, so we are getting close to wrapping this up. I just want to remind everyone that on December 7th, I have my webinar. It's called Hacking Writing on a Line Level. So it's essentially all my best advice on how to make sure that you are writing on a line level is looking great. It's going to be all examples all the time showing you what works. In other words, strong writing on a line level and what doesn't and what techniques each author used. And then you can go ahead and choose to use these techniques in your own work if you feel like they are in your style. So that's December 7th. Links to that are in my social media bios. Head over and register. Um, if you can't make it live on the day, that's okay. You'll get a recording and you can watch it for 60 days after it airs, but it will not be sold after the date. So register now if you're interested. And for our final question, Tracy, I really wanted to know, what book would you recommend for us? Of course, other than I didn't sign up for this. Maybe it's a book that you're reading and you're excited about. Maybe it's a book that's in your to-be-read list and you haven't started yet. And also any final words of encouragement or advice or even words of beware for our listeners who are aspiring to be where you are now. I just finished Maybe Next Time by Jessica Major. And she, I wanted to throw the book in the first chapter. She held up such a mirror for me in terms of reflecting back how we show up day to day. And I just love those books. And I, it's funny enough, one of my friends had texted me saying, I want to throw your book across the room. <laughs> and it was one of the best moments to have someone say that to me. Oh gosh, my, my piece would be, 
allow yourself to sit in the discomfort that comes with vulnerability and messy. And it's not to say that it has to be painful or you need to get swept away from it. And maybe it even prompts you to go to therapy and to explore some of this stuff with a therapist and to make sense of your own vulnerabilities. But to remember that when we learn to sit in that discomfort, there we get to grow and stretch and discover new parts of ourselves. And that is what connects us with other people. And when we feel comfortable in who we are, it doesn't matter if people reject you, let them reject you. You get to know you. I love that so much. Both the part about throwing your book, because truly that is a very visceral reaction that speaks volumes about how great a book is and how much it's really, really speaking to your core. And the advice for everyone out there, whether you're writing a novel, whether you're writing poetry, whether you're writing a memoir, whether you're writing anything, truly anything, slow down where it hurts. Because when you slow down where it hurts, you will be doing yourself and your readers a huge, huge favor. Thank you so much, Tracy, for doing this. I'm so glad we finally got to chat. We made plans, listeners, we made plans of Tracy being on this podcast when I signed her as a client. We said, if this works out, if we do this, you'll get to come on the podcast and I'll get to interview you. Will you come? And she said yes. So I held her to it. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you, Cece. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.
Welcome to another bonus episode with some great Q&A. But before we start, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody that was so prompt signing up for Deep Dive. It really blew us away, to be honest. Just the amount of energy and enthusiasms and signups. We know we have a great crew already signed up and we have so many weeks to go before Deep Dive even starts. If you guys are listening to this now, the first round of early bird has closed, but I have some good news. We have the second early bird round, which is our second tier. So you guys are going to be getting $100 off this group once you start signing up. So signups will run all the way until the event, which starts on January 16th. So once again, you can sign up obviously until the date, but we have a limited second tier with $100 off. So come join the already incredible number of signups for Deep Dive. We are very excited. All right. I'm going to throw to Cece. And before we begin this month's bonus Q&A, we just want to say on behalf of the podcast that we are going to listen to unscripted questions from our listeners, and we will be offering our own unscripted advice. As always, it's just our opinion. It's very subjective. And we trust that you know what is best for your book. Our goal is to give you knowledge and to empower you. So thank you so much for listening. All right, let's hear the first question. And Carly, will you take that for us? Hi, my question is, do you have any tips for marketing to agents, a novel that has two authors? My husband is Mexican and left his country as a migrant. Because one of our story's two plot lines details the plights of Mexican migrants, I would not feel comfortable being the sole author, as I am a strong believer in hashtag own voices. However, my husband does not have the writing skills to write such a book on his own. He has provided the stories that inspired the narrative, as well as many culturally appropriate metaphors, aphorisms, and colloquial Spanish expressions that pepper the dialogue. I've woven everything together into a riveting narrative. I feel there is a sort of cult of individual authorship backed by the outdated romantic notion of the struggling artist isolated in the garret. But in my opinion, two minds are better than one. Can you please comment on agent and market reception of co-authored novels? Thank you. I think this one is pretty straightforward. Really, it's just including both of you guys in the bio. I mean, I would consider you guys to be co-authors. I don't think you, obviously, you know, you gave us a nice long kind of description in terms of the question to give us lots of context. But in terms of the author bio, it's incredibly straightforward. I've worked with tons of co-authors before. And one thing I will say is that it is important to have a collaborators agreement. So anybody who is doing a co-authored project and you're listening to this and you two in particular who are husband and wife, I think even between husband and wife, it's a really good idea to have a collaborators agreement because what you're going to be agreeing to in your future publishing contract is something that is going to be a legally binding document. And so a collaborators agreement, obviously, you know, talk to your IP lawyer or whoever you kind of work with, but your collaborators agreement is going to cover things like, you know, what happens? I mean, obviously this is super morbid, but like in this project of this book coming out, what happens if one of you passes away or, you know, one of you becomes disabled and isn't able to kind of contribute to the book project. So one thing I will say on the back end, have a collaborators agreement, but on the front end, I know I went off on a tangent there, on the front end in terms of the query letter, I think it's quite simple. And so I would just say that your co-authors on the project include a bio of the two of you. Perfect. And I will add my own two cents 
in the query letter, I would not explain why you are collaborating. That is something that you can chat about in the call with the agent. I would not recommend saying things like, he doesn't have the writing skills because that's super subjective and really not the point right now. I would just stick to, we are doing this together. This is our vision. That's something that I think is super important. Okay, we'll listen to you the second question now. Hi there. Thank you so much for, although I love the podcast, I am in the midst of the querying trenches and had a question related to follow-up etiquette. So if you get a full or partial request from an agent, should you let the other agents that you've queried know, or do you just let them know when you've actually got an offer of representation? Also, if you've queried via like online form or query tracker, how do you go about letting the other agents know? Do you try to find their email address? Any advice you have on when to follow up with agents and when not to? Thanks so much. Bye. So thank you so much for this question. My advice is to follow each agent's guidelines. For me, for Cece, I only want to know when you have an offer. I don't want to be updated every time you get a partial or full request. Many agents that I talk to agree. However, each agent is different. So I'd look at individual preferences online. A lot of agents chat about this on social media. If the agent does want to be notified of an update, be it of a request or an offer, then you should be able to reach them via Query Manager. Once upon a time, I used Query Manager myself. This was before I joined PSLA. And I had my settings set up in a way that allowed authors to ping me if they had offers. So you should be able to find a way to do that or else it wouldn't make sense for the agent to want to be kept updated. Okay, next question. Carly, will you answer that for us? Hi, ladies. So I have a question today about publishing contests. I'm currently querying a murder mystery novel and two Asians have my full at the moment. But I'm debating whether or not I should enter the Minotaur Books Best First Crime Novel competition. On one hand, I would love to be published by them, but I'm also wondering if it's too early on in the querying process to go this route. Would the agents who currently have my full be irritated if I tell them I entered this contest? If I lose the contest, but I end up getting an agent and am I ruining my chance with Minotaur Books? I would love to hear your thoughts about the pros and cons of entering contests like this and if querying authors should consider it or not. Would you be okay if an author you requested a full from told you they'd entered this contest? Many thanks for any insight. Okay, this is an interesting one and something that's super common. I would say, though, this type of thing does bother me. And I think by you asking this question, you probably think, oh, potentially an agent would be bothered by it. So this this type of thing bothers me for a couple of reasons. First, I'll start with why it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me because I obviously always want the best for every author. Of course, if you're like, that's an opportunity and other things haven't worked out and like, this is my shot. Totally. Like if this, if it feels right to you, then do it. But I will tell you why this book will bother me as an agent, because who does this writing contest best serve? It doesn't best serve you, the author. It best serves the publisher because they're getting exclusive, potentially exclusive, you know, opportunities to look at this material 
all the authors are doing the work for them, kind of submitting it through this program. And it's not in the best interest of the author because you don't have multiple opportunities in terms of an agent pitching you across the board. There's just so many reasons, right? Why I really just, it's not that I think every writing contest is bad. I'm just trying to think, okay, from an author's perspective, what gives you the power in this situation? And it's having the most eyeballs on your work, meaning submitting to a bunch of publishers and your agent will have contacts at Minotaur books and therefore they can pitch them. You don't have to do it through the contest. So I would always focus on getting an agent first. And that isn't because I'm an agent. It's because I know what an agent can do for you and you're potentially limiting yourself by submitting to this contest. And then say they do offer or, you know, you make it farther in the contest and then you have to go let the other agents know it's, it's similar to just, you know, submitting to a small press while you're submitting to agents because it's like, well, do you want to take that deal? And, or, you know, it's, it's just making a step back and, and just not be able to exercise our full potential as an agent, which is work on the manuscript with you, polish it up, cultivate a submission list, go out on sub, figure out our strategy. You know, maybe there's an auction, right? It's just, it's so limiting. And that's what I think is just not doing you justice. That's all. Thank you, Carly. Now off to the next question. Okay, so this question is twofold. What goes into a newsletter? Like, what should you put in it? And then how do you get people to sign up for your newsletter? Okay, thank you so much for this question. I will assume that you mean an author newsletter. And for that, and for so much more, I recommend getting started by going to Jane Friedman's website. If anyone's curious, we are not affiliated to Jane Friedman in Anyway, we just love her content. I love her content. She's so great. There's one article in particular called Email Newsletters for Authors, Get Started Guide, which I find to be a very, very helpful starting point. And once you've done a little bit of research on that, I recommend taking a look at the newsletters you subscribe to. Study what is most appealing about these newsletters that you love, that you look forward to seeing in your inbox. Imagine, ooh, if it were me, I'd love to see this. So maybe my newsletter could have that thing that you wish this other newsletter had. Maybe some of these things will work for you. Maybe they won't. But I do find that being a fan and looking at what other newsletters are doing is a very effective way to bulk up your research. Carly, anything to add on that since you are our brand expert? I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think you answered that perfectly, but I have a few things to add. One thing I wanted to add was actually another Jane Friedman resource was actually funny because you started saying that. I'm like, oh, I wonder if we're going to say the same resource. Jane Friedman just did a recent kind of free webinar, which she actually posted for free on YouTube. So you can go to Jane Friedman's YouTube page. Friedman is spelled F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. She has something called the Business Clinic. And the thing you can watch on YouTube is called the Business Clinic why isn't my sub stack gaining any traction? I'm going to talk about a couple of things. I haven't watched this yet. It's on my to watch list, but I know it's going to be great because she puts out great content. I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about sub stack. So I think it, you should, everybody should be migrating their newsletters to sub stack. This is not affiliated by, you know, with Substack. We are not sponsored by Substack. We just happen to use it. And I've really been leaning into a number of things with Substack. One of it is their app. Their app is incredible. I have stumbled upon and subscribed to so many newsletters, Substack newsletters, just by being on the app. It has an incredible interface. It recommends other things to you. And you can kind of like quote tweet, if you kind of know from Twitter, you can quote tweet other people's newsletters. And so it, it creates like an incredible feed of like great content, super interactive. So I'd be migrating your newsletter Substack. I would be using the app. 
The second thing I would recommend is something called a lead magnet. And if you don't know, if you're not in sales or marketing, you don't know what a lead magnet is, what you can do is go to our Substack, which is the shit no one tells you about writing Substack. I created a lead magnet. And what a lead magnet is, is a video or a resource or a PDF or like a free chapter of your book. A lead magnet is when you sign up for somebody's newsletter, they are giving you their email, right? That is currency, right? That's value. They are giving you the email. What are you giving them in return? for that currency. I provided our Substack subscribers a free webinar. And so first time somebody signs up for our Substack, they're going to be able to download the free webinar resource that I created for them. So that's called the lead magnet. So I think everybody should have a lead magnet. I think everybody should be on Substack. Obviously, there's other newsletter platforms out there. Of course, I'm not saying it has to be Substack. I'm just I'm just saying I've noticed lately it's a really, really incredible tool for gaining new subscribers and just, again, being in an ecosystem of people on that app who want to be subscribing to newsletters. Love that. Okay, so next question. And Carly, will you take that? What if one of the major points in your query isn't in the first five pages of the book, but it is still an important part of the story? Can I still use it or am I letting down the agent? Our goal is always for you guys to write the best first five pages possible and the first 50 pages and the first novel, right? And so if things aren't happening at the kind of beat expectations that you think you are supposed to be hitting or other kind of expectations in terms of, you know, major points not being in the first five pages, I think that's okay. I really wouldn't be hard on yourself about this by any means. Really just try to focus on telling the best story in the best possible way. And if you've kind of taken some of our other teachings, you know, Cece and I teach a you know, best first five pages webinar and all these other things. If you've like learned as much as you can from us, really just just know that you are doing the right thing for your story. And, and that's all we ask of you. Amazing. Thank you, Carly. Okay, so next question, and I'll take that. Hi, my question is, how does the holiday season affect publishing timelines and timelines for agents in your experience? So with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, should authors who are sending queries to agents expect it to take longer to hear back or do things slow down around the holidays giving agents more time to look at query letters and how does that work thanks oh this is an excellent question so to start let me say that yes a lot in publishing does slow down during the holiday season and we're entering that season right now as we record this we're entering Let's circle back after the holiday season, as I'm sure everyone has seen by the copious amounts of memes being circulated on the subject. So what does that mean in terms of agents' responsiveness during this season? Honestly, it depends, because some agents may take time off, and therefore it'll take even longer to hear back from these agents. Other agents may take advantage of the quiet time for maybe a week or two, maybe longer, and catch up on the foals they've had in their inboxes for a while. So this truly does depend on each agent and their plans, their availability. What I will say is that we see this on the editor side too. You know, editors will, before the end of the year, sometimes take advantage of the season and get back to agents on whatever is pending. So it's it's really across the board in publishing. Okay, so next question, Carly, will you take that? Hi there. I have a dual timeline, dual POV novel, and I'm having a hard time keeping my query word count below 450. Is it okay to just do a short burst about the second, much more minor POV 
as well as a small note about the past timeline. Also, is it okay to have the second minor POV pop up fairly rarely in the actual novel? She's a major character and her POV is important, even though only about 20% of the novel is in her. I think it works. My beta readers think it works. But what do the experts say about the idea of that? Something probably not done that often. Thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you do. Okay, so this one, this is something we've talked about on the podcast off and on because everybody has really different feelings about what is considered like a minor POV, especially if they're getting word counts, space, and dual POV query letters are also really hard. So there's a couple of things. Firstly, I would refer everybody to jacket copy in terms of, you know, if there are books that are published that have, you know, dual POVs in that capacity, the same as yours, just check out, you know, what that what that jacket copy looks like. I think it has to be mentioned, obviously, because it's a POV character, but that's only in 20% of the story, which is pretty minor. So I'm going to throw to CC to get your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, no, I, I completely get the the dilemma here, right? Like, so I think there's two parts to your question. Part number one is how to frame it in the query letter. And part number two is, does it work in the story? When it comes to the query letter, I think that adding one line about it is okay if it's really just 20%. Just make sure that this one line, maybe two lines, indicates how this different timeline slash POV, how it contributes to the story in a way that makes everything come together in a way that elevates curiosity. Like that is really, really important. And truly the biggest mistake I see when incorporating dual timelines, whether evenly split or not, is the worlds colliding. Like I want to see the worlds collide and I want to see the major dramatic question include both of these storylines in a way that feels really, really seamless and inevitable and organic. So yeah, looking at jacket copy, truly the best way. However, when it comes to the second part of your question, you're asking me, like, does it work in the story? Because as you pointed out, very maturely, very wisely, it's not common, right? When it comes to things that aren't common, it's high risk, high reward. I also cannot think of a single debut that did what you are suggesting. Does that mean that you shouldn't do it? Absolutely not. You should do whatever you want. It's your story, your vision. You're the designer of this world. You know you're up against a bigger challenge because you are. But in my opinion, it'll come down to how well you can execute it. Try to find books that do it, even if not debuts. Try to see if one of these books could be used as a comp for your story. Try to figure out how the books that did it make it work. The thing about points of view, especially in a different timeline, is that it needs to be earned. It can't just be, I'm adding this other point of view because I need information to come across and the protagonist doesn't know the information. That is a terrible reason to add another point of view, in my opinion. It's an insufficient reason. However, this character is adding depth and layers and emotional stakes to the story. These are good reasons, in my opinion. So really, it's going to come down to your why and your how. You know already, you know it's it's high risk, high reward. You basically said it in your question. So I think that you are pretty confident in your choices. And so we're wishing you good luck. And we look forward to hearing from you if you do find your success story, which we're really excited about. Okay, so now we're going to go to the next question and I will answer that. On the Surrey panel that Cece participated in, she said that even if you're writing in third person, if you are writing a person's inner thoughts, they should be expressed in first person. I'm wondering about that because my character is written in third person, but I'm writing her thoughts 
as third person. So could you please explain? My name is Mona. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, so yes, I did say that at the Surrey panel. I really enjoyed the Surrey International Writers Conference, by the way. So shout out to them. It was so well organized and great. Let me explain what I meant. What do I mean by direct thoughts? I mean the word-for-word thought that pops inside a protagonist's head in a specific scene. Usually, these are written in italics. So let's picture a scene together. Let's all of us do that now. Imagine that you're reading the following story in the third person. Carly and Cece walk into the room at the same time. Cece scans the crowd, surprised with the turnout. She eyes Carly and smiles, hoping her expression does not betray her thoughts. I'm nervous, she realizes. The words are too scary to say out loud. Still, Cece suspects that Carly knows how she's feeling. They've been working together for a long time now, and Carly is a perceptive person. Okay, we're out of the story. Notice the I'm nervous. I just read that, right? I'm nervous. That's a direct thought. That would be written in italics. Cece, the character in the story, Cece, was thinking to herself, I'm nervous. And when we think, we don't think in third person. I would not think she is nervous, she being me. That would make no sense. You, Mona, would not think Mona is nervous or she is nervous. You would think I'm nervous. So that's why I'm recommending writing these direct thoughts in the first person. Sometimes, though, you don't have to write the pronoun at all. The thought could be, imagine if Carly had asked Cece, Cece, how are you feeling? Cece could have answered in her head, nervous, she realizes. And nervous would be in italics. So sometimes the pronouns don't come into play at all. But when they do, take a look at the novels you love written in the third person. Chances are, if these novels have direct thoughts, these thoughts are in the first person. Meaning if the character is referring to themselves by using a pronoun, they'll probably use the I pronoun. Not she, they, he, whatever their pronouns might be. If you want an example from the real world, take a look at Apples Never Fall by Leon Moriarty. Turn to chapter 12, in which we are in the point of view of Christina Curry, who is talking to Logan. Again, Christina is the POV character. She is a detective. And when Logan asks Christina, are you guys treating my father as a suspect? Christina thinks to herself, this is a direct quote, of course I am, mate. You know I am. End quote. Leanne Moriarty uses the I pronoun here. She inserts this direct thought in italics in the first person, even though the entire book is told in the third person. All other references to Christina are in the third person. So it's super common. Take a look at the books you love because I'm betting that once you start noticing this, you won't be able to unsee it. That being said, as always, if you are writing the direct thoughts in the third person and you think that works, you think that is a style that is best suited for you, it's your writing and always, always your choice. Okay, let's go to the next question. Carly, will you take that for us? I'm taking a book proposal course taught by the founder of a small press. She says for comp titles to use books published from 2020 to 2023, or even better from 2024 and beyond based on catalogs and other pre-publication info. I'm confused by this. And I know it really depends and there's no rules, but it would really help me out if you could give me an opinion. What's most important, the most recent date of publication for a comp title or the fact that we've actually read the book and it's similar to ours and something 
that we can compare our book to? Or should we just have a mix of everything? I mean, I have books from 2017. Can I still use those? All right. So I generally don't like dunking on other industry professionals because I know everybody out there has something to offer. I know everybody out there has their own background and that's how they infuse their own thoughts towards the advice they give. Like, I totally understand that. I will say this feels off the mark to me. And again, these are my opinions and I will tell you why. Looking at catalog info should not be a requirement for an author who is trying to pitch their book. I mean, to me, it just doesn't really make any sense. And I'll tell you why, because like catalog copy is for booksellers and librarians and like retailers, like nobody's actually read that book yet. It hasn't even come out on the market. And so reading about future books is interesting. And that is market research in its own capacity. But as a comp title, it's actually not a comp title because we don't have any sales data for it. And nobody's read it yet. So the editors haven't read it. Agents haven't read it. You know what I mean? Like to me, that just, that's why that feels off the mark to me. So I would not suggest doing any research about future titles. I know sometimes, you know, there might be an interesting book deal that's announced, right? And you're like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds like my book. People think that all the time. And then when that eventual book comes out, like whether it's in first or third person, what the tone is, who the audience is, the package, like everything about it kind of changes in our mind, right? Like we think, oh, we know what that book is. And so there's just so many things around that concept, which are blowing my mind, which is why I don't feel like this is the right course of action. And that is why. Now you said, you know, you have a 2017 comp. I think that is totally fine. I mean, obviously, you know, 2020 would be better than 2017 in my mind, but if it's the best comp and it's the right comp and you've read it and it sold particularly well, and I know I'm going to get people saying like, what does sold well mean? It's like, just make sure it has a certain number of Goodreads reviews and a certain number of Amazon reviews. And, you know, like there's been people reading it, you know, you know, it's out there, you know, it's out there in the world if it's not like, you know, on the bestseller list or Indie Next list or Library Reads list or anything like that. So All this to say, I know I stress you guys out about comps. I know you stress yourselves out about comps a lot. All we're trying to do is just take the temperature of the industry, try to figure out what's going on with your book, where it sits in the marketplace, do your best. But I I do feel like this whole like look at pre-pub details is a little off the mark. And so I did want to share that. I very much agree. And as an agent, I would not want to receive a query letter that is referencing books that I have not read, do not know if they're going to do well or not. So there's always an exception, sure. But as a rule, I very, very much agree. All right, next question. Hey, y'all. I'm Sarah in St. Louis. Thank you for your podcast. I have a question about structuring a query for a mystery. Many traditional mysteries feature a detective who doesn't significantly change over the course of the book. For instance, think of Louise Penny's Inspector Gamache series. Gamache deepens as a character, but other characters are the ones with significant emotional change and growth. Jacket copies for this kind of mystery usually focus on the lead detective and the murder, but they rarely mention emotional art characters. So what do you suggest for a query? Should I explicitly say, so-and-so's the lead detective, describe the main plot of solving the mystery, and then have a separate paragraph about the character with the main emotional journey and show how that journey connects to solving the murder? Thank you for your advice. Okay. Hello, Sarah. So I recommend mirroring the pitch copy on the back of your comp titles. So go to your comp titles. Take a look at how the pitch copy is written and take a look at other books too that might not be comps to your book exactly, but you know, that are for fans of your book. So 
What's most important with mysteries that are clearly plot-driven, such as yours, is that the reader's curiosity is piqued in a way that prompts them to pick up the book. Usually, we're talking about story-forward curiosity, mean what's going to happen next, right? So with the back of the book, though, with the pitch copy, it's not what's going to happen next. It's what's going to happen, period. So I think you're fine. I don't think you have to worry about the emotional arc. I think that's mostly for other genres. I'm not saying the story doesn't have to have emotional arc, because of course it does, but I am saying that I don't think you have to worry too much when it comes to the, the query letter, the plot paragraphs and the query letter. All right, everyone. So that was it for today. Thank you so much for your awesome questions. We hope to see you in the deep dive series. There's still time to sign up. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.